Pastor Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, and we welcome all who are joining us for our Bible study here. We welcome all those who are here in person in our gymnasium, also those joining us in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM, and those literally worldwide joining us on KFUO.org. Welcome to all of you. We pray God's blessing upon our study of God's Word. For those here in the gymnasium, there are Bibles available on a cart back by the door there. And we're going to be picking up right where Pastor Smith left off last time. So we'll start with Romans 13 this morning and talk about that. And before we get into it, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all your blessings to us, both individually as your children and also collectively as your church. We pray especially thanking you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the unending life we have in your presence through him. We thank you also for the gift of your word and how that word instructs us, as we will see today, into that which is pleasing in your sight. And we pray your Holy Spirit's guidance and blessing today as we study that word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we'll be continuing as we look at how does God want us to live as his children here in this world. Paul has done a lot in the first chapters of Romans talking about how we are saved, obviously by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not because of works. And then he begins a section which you've already been in talking about now how do we live as people who have been set free from sin and the slavery to sin. How do we conduct ourselves in a God-pleasing way in this world? And today we're going to look at Romans 13, starting with verse 1, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7, first of all. This is one of the key sections in all of the scriptures when it comes to what is our relationship to be with the government. And what is the government's relationship supposed to be with us as the church, okay? So I want to read uh, 13, 1 through 7, and then we'll go back and really kind of get into it and discuss it together. So starting at verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed, to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed, revenue, to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All right, let's go back and see. First of all, this fits in very well with what Paul has just talked about in Romans chapter 12. Remember from last week, 
Paul has been saying that we do not take vengeance into our own hands. We don't go after someone else and seeking vengeance. Go back, if you could, just flip back to Romans 12. Look at verses 17 and following. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And especially that portion where it says, do not take revenge, leave room for God's wrath, and that it is mine to avenge. I will repay, he says. Well, how is God going to do this? How does God take his vengeance out? One of the ways, at least temporally here in this world, is through the government. Okay? And we kind of intuitively know this. If someone does something against me or against Anne, I don't have the right to go and get a weapon and go after them, or else I'm in trouble, right? But the government, those who have been set in power by God to avenge evil, they have, the work, working through the government, God then brings about justice, okay? And we'll talk about this uh, a little bit more in terms of our own uh, situation here in the United States. So it fits in very well. How is God going to take out this vengeance? How is he going to repay evil and bring justice? One of the ways is through the government, at least here and now. And of course, ultimately, in the bigger scheme of things, when Christ returns and judgment takes place. Secondly, there is that again, that if you put yourself in the position of those Roman Christians back at the time Paul is writing, what the big question has to be, what is our relationship going to be to the government? Christ has set us free from sin. Are we supposed to subject ourselves, though, to the government? Or somehow do we as Christians live outside of subjecting ourselves to the government? What is the role here? What does God want us to do? And Paul minces no words here in telling the Christians that, in fact, they are to be subject to the government. Let's go back and look at verse 1. Notice there, Paul says, let every person. <laughs> he doesn't even distinguish there. Every person, that's Christian or non-Christian, anyone and everyone is to be subject to or come under the authority of the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. So who has established government and authority? It is God who has done it. Okay? And those who have been, uh, those that exist, have been instituted by God. Now, this backs up a couple places we could look, and we won't look around uh, that much at all, but way back in the Old Testament, this isn't just a New Testament concept, but way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, um, the, uh, Daniel 4, verse 25, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So Daniel 4 there, the Most High, God, is the one who establishes the kingdom of men and gives it to, to whom he will. Then remember Jesus as he is appearing before Pilate. And remember Pilate says, don't you realize I have the authority to set you free? 
And Jesus famously responds in John 19, 11, you would have no authority against me at all unless it had been given you from above. So this is a principle that is all the way through the scriptures. Now, let me ask you this question. If God establishes the government, he's the one who gives the authority. What about a guy like Adolf Hitler? What about a guy like Mussolini? What about rulers such as that? If God establishes the government, how do we explain rulers like that? And history, of course, is filled with them. That's a good question. Now, this is, here's the answer. <laughs> God establishes the government and the authorities, but he does not preordain what those who are occupying those offices are going to do, right? He establishes the government, but there will always be, as long as we are sinful human beings, there will always be people who will misuse and abuse their authority and act in ways that obviously are not pleasing in the sight of God. In fact, ways that are even contrary to the word of God. Okay? So again, we believe that all authority, governmental, has been established by God. But that doesn't mean that every ruler is going to behave in a godly way or is going to act in ways that are pleasing to God. In fact, we see time and time again just the opposite occurs. Okay? So that's a good question, I think, because people will read this and say, well, wait a minute, what about, what about the Nazis? What about you know, those types of governing rulers? And, and that, is, that is the answer. Okay? Now, uh, going on, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, let me ask you this. Is there a time when we as Christians have not only a right to resist, but an obligation to resist. Ruth, correct. Acts 5.29 we go back to, it, we must obey God rather than man, right? There, might, there may be those times when the government even commands us to do something, and we say this is clearly opposed to the word of God. Particularly, I think, you know, just one example that came to my mind yesterday, I was thinking about this, is what if, and this is a case in some parts of the world, unfortunately, already, what if the government establishes certain quality of life standards? And if you don't meet those standards, your life could, could be taken or ended, or you could take your own life or end your own life. Quality of life standards. And we would say, and first of all, as a person ourselves, if we're in that situation, no, that is opposed to the word of God. Or if a relative is in that position, no, that is contrary to the word of God. We do nothing that takes away or harms life. It is a gift from God. So that, those would be uh, the exceptional times where we would be called upon actually to resist a clear order or directive from the government. Again, obeying God rather than man. But Yes, the uh, context, the, the passage back in Daniel was uh, not, a good, not a good one. And another thing about the Daniel passage is 
Who's the ruler? Nebuchadnezzar. Not a Boy Scout either, right? And uh, God actually, though, the Babylonians to accomplish his will, his purpose. That's a whole other subject of God using governments and leaders in order to do his purpose and bring about his will, okay? So anyway, that would be the one exception we would say, and again, we'll let me scripture interpret scripture, but again, let's go to verse three. Our rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. When you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So if you don't want to fear the government, do what is good. Now again, this is assuming that the government is not an oppressive government that is just out to, you know, uh, do terrible things to its people. So if you don't want to fear the government, just do what's good. The government is there to punish evil and to encourage good behavior. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been noticing in the last uh, couple of years now, since we've been in this pandemic, haven't you noticed what I would call a little anti-law abiding on, on the part of people? At least I, the place I see it the most is on the roads. I have never seen some things happen that I have seen in the last, especially the last few months. People, you know, using left turn lanes to go uh, past people, even in the middle of intersections, turning left on a solid red light when there's no traffic coming that way. So, I mean, it, it, we're kind of in a time right now where I think you know, a lot of this is starting to manifest itself, sort of this anti-law uh, abiding on the part of people. And it's going to be interesting to see where, where do we end up with this? I mean, that, that's on the road. I shudder to think what's happening in other places that we can't see or, you know, it's not, not observable. Steve? Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Steve brought up the point of the government going against God's law and you know, we, it seems anyway, that the government is, and I guess I'll talk about our society and our culture too, seemingly less and less, I guess you'd say, friendly toward the church. And I've often, I've said this to several people that, you know, I'm waiting for the day when, for example, Pastor Wade or I are teaching either a Bible class or even in our school or someplace, a public venue somewhere, teaching what the Bible clearly teaches about, for example, the Sixth Commandment and sexuality issues, and we get attacked for, for hate speech, you know, and, and that we're, we're somehow brought up on charges for this. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but on the other hand, I'm thinking, how far away are we from that? You know, is that, is that actually going to happen someday? Uh, yeah, what you can't, yeah, Steve had mentioned again, tell you what you should say. I think it was two years ago that the mayor, do you remember its news story, the mayor of Houston? wanted the pastors in the city to turn in their sermons to him. Do you, any of you remember that? I could not believe that. Could not believe that. That is not, we're going to talk about the two kingdoms here. <laughs> I can stop talking. We're going to talk about the two kingdoms here. That is not the role of the government. It is not the role of the government. Okay? We'll get to that. But yeah, that's, that's a good point. All right? So now, going on, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, and here comes the section here, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, okay? So again, there's a difference here. I, as a private person, do not carry out God's wrath on somebody else. I call the police, and they, I'm working for the government whom God has put in place, 
they carry out God's wrath, okay? If I do it, I could be arrested as well. I could be in trouble myself. So I don't use lethal force, but the police can, in certain cases, use lethal force. Police officer's not acting on his own authority, is he? He's acting on the authority of the government, right? Same thing with soldiers, right? I don't take, uh, carry out lethal force, but the soldier can't. Why? He's not acting on his own authority. He's acting on the authority of the government to do what? To punish evil. And we could get into the whole topic of just war and say that a just war is one that is to punish evil or to uh, quell evil. And that's what we always have to be careful, that we're, we're getting into a war in order to punish evil and not for some other motives or, or ideas. Yes, there's a protection element there too. Now, again, I, this is a good point. I, this does not apply to self-defense, does it? People always ask that question. We, are, we certainly have the right to defend ourselves. What we're talking about here is taking vengeance or avenging something. And again, it says very clearly here that government is God's arm to avenge, okay? So police can, they're acting on behalf of the government. Military can, acting on behalf of the government. But not me, private citizen, avenging this. This is why we have the government. It is God's servant, God's instrument for our good, okay? Now going on, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. It, some of your translations may, uh, the translation you have may say he is the minister of God. In the Greek, it's the diakonos or the servant or the minister. The government is there as a servant of God. Okay. However good or bad the individual ruler may be, he is there as the government is there as the servant. Okay. So the avenger carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so there's two reasons you're supposed to be subject to the government here, Paul says. Number one, you're going to get punished, or you should get punished if you break the law and experience God's wrath. But then there's also this matter of your conscience. And we won't look at it now, but in Romans 2, it talks about, let's, let's just ask this question, where, where did the conscience come from? Where did that, first of all, what is a conscience? I'm wondering sometimes if people have lost that today. It is what, that little voice? That little voice inside, right? Hopefully it's not audible, but <laughs> it's that little voice inside that says what? That's wrong. Or what I did was wrong. Or if I did that, it would be wrong. Okay? Where did that, uh, where did that come from? God, Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 15, that God wrote his law where? On our hearts. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the, that's one of the proofs, I guess we would say, for the existence of God. In addition to the creation around us that we say is just too magnificent, too complex to have just come to be by itself, there's also that conscience. And where did that come from? Again, God wrote his law on our hearts. Unfortunately, after the fall into sin, our hearts have been corrupted, haven't they? And so we have to be careful when we're listening to our conscience. But again, that, that voice, that voice inside of us. So for those two reasons, Paul says, to obey the government, obey the law. And unfortunately, we do again see times 
where people, frankly, just don't seem to have a conscience. You know, it doesn't seem to, to bother them to do certain things that we would think, how in the world could you do that or say that or, or not do that or not say that? You know. So anyway, those two reasons. Verse 6, for because of this, now here comes the good part, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Now there is another question the church had to be facing, right? Are we to pay taxes to, of all things, this Roman government? Okay? Paul says here, for this reason, because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. There it is again, servants of God, attending to this very thing. Um, you can also translate that, giving their continued attention or, or giving their full time to this. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue uh, to whom revenue is owed. The taxes there, the first one, the taxes, what's the difference between taxes and revenue? The taxes were just the regular taxes that Roman citizens outside of Rome were to pay. You know what, if you were a Roman citizen inside of Rome, you were exempted from those taxes. But outside of Rome, you had to pay them. So just the regular taxes. The revenue one, the second one that's listed there, that's taxes on things like rental income and profits and things of that nature. But Paul is saying, pay them both. You pay them both as Christians, okay? Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, okay? So, Christians, freed from our sin, but again, subject to God's servant, the government, including the paying of taxes. You remember, remember how they tried to get Jesus on that question about paying taxes? Remember that situation? And it's in Matthew 22. I'll just read a little bit of it here, verse uh, 15, starting verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, uh, the Herodians were the ones who were in favor of Roman rule, and the Pharisees and the Herodians are strange bedfellows here, but they have a common enemy. They want to trip up Jesus. So I said, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Well, here you know, here it comes, here it comes. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they think they've got him here, right? Because if he says yes, they're, they, they are just detested. The Jews detested paying taxes to Rome. If he says, no, don't pay taxes to Rome, what are they going to charge him with? Ins insurrection or treason? Yeah. So here's what he did. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left and went away. So Jesus also upheld the idea of paying taxes, in this case to even a Roman government at that time. There was another time, this is not as well known, I don't think it's read nearly as much, when they came to Jesus with the question, and he was criticized for not paying the temple tax. There was also a tax, you might call it a religious tax, that went to the temple and basically helped pay for the running of the temple in Jerusalem. And so this is in Matthew 17. 
When they came to Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came, Jesus came into the house. Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. Okay? So Jesus is saying, actually, the kings, their sons don't pay the tax. They should be free. In other words, we shouldn't have to pay the temple tax either. But so as not to give offense, we're going to pay it. And so Jesus tells them to go out, fish, and provides the tax when Peter catches the fish. So that's a less known story. But you see, there is no, there is no support in the scriptures for Christians not paying tax. Now, I know the church is not taxed. I think that law goes back, does anybody know the history? I think it's around 1913 is what I remember reading, that in this country, the church has not been taxed. The church, when you stop and think about it, does a lot of caring for the poor and the sick and the needy, and that has always been recognized by the government, okay? And we are not taxed. Now, there's certain lines there we're not supposed to cross over, right? We're not supposed to get into the political realm, and although I will tell you every election, I see that violated. How that happens, I have no idea. But you watch the news before some elections, and you will see politicians in the pulpits of churches on the news. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how they don't get uh, in trouble for that. Now, pastors and churches can speak out and provide a Christian perspective on issues such as life, for example, is a, is a one that happened, or on sexuality issues. But that's a lot different than telling you, go and vote for John Doe, who's running for state representative or something of that nature. I mean, to us, that does cross over that line, okay? There's not always a neat and clean line because we as Christians are living and functioning in and with government around us. It's not that we're supposed to not be involved with it, but we are influencers in that government as well. Okay. Now let's talk about the two kingdoms just a little bit. Notice that these two kingdoms, there's a right-hand kingdom and a left-hand kingdom we talk about. The left-hand kingdom we normally speak of as the kingdom of the world. That would be the government, the politics, all the items of this world. The right-hand kingdom we talk about is, in other words, the church or God's kingdom. They're really both God's kingdoms when you stop and think about it. He rules the world. He rules his church as well. The two are sometimes brought together in ways that don't work so very well, especially if the government should start telling the church how to do its work, what to preach, what not to preach, how to function, whether or not, you know, our country protects, doesn't it, the free exercise of religion. That's in, in our Constitution. And if the government should do anything that impedes the free exercise of our religion, we would say that is stepping over the line. And we would, again, have the right to resist that as something that we know 
is not pleasing in the sight of God. Okay? And on the other hand, as I said, we don't, on the church side, we don't, or shouldn't be, getting into telling uh, people who to vote for and, you know, basically the kingdom of the right hand. Even the right hand's main purpose is peace and order so that the right-hand kingdom can. We can preach the gospel. We can administer his sacraments in a safe environment and are allowed to do that. We're blessed with that here in this country at this time, but that's not the case all the way around the world, is it? There are places where governments are, are uh, oppressing the church and, in fact, are punishing Christians. And so the Christians are meeting secretly and not, cannot meet openly and publicly as we are able to do. Okay? I think there was a hand. Dennis, did you? Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll let you consider that. And uh, if you uh, want to continue with it, just raise your hand again. Oh, okay. Okay, so the question was, to what degree do we resist? Yeah, so it, it's hard to speak in theory, but if, let's say, for example, the, the government tells us we cannot worship, we cannot hold services, then we have to ask ourselves, that clearly seems like it's not only inappropriate, but actually it's a violation of our, of our Constitution. And I would think we would go ahead and meet. We would go ahead and worship. Okay, yeah, so the question was, do we accept the punishment? We would, I guess, have to accept it in terms of it being forced upon us if, if we're at the end of a gun or something of that nature, it doesn't mean we would approve of that, of that punishment. And there are Christians all over the world who are, again, being opposed in that manner, violently opposed, some of them, you know, putting, and so on. So this is not, a, not just a theoretical uh, discussion. It's, it's happening around the world, even as we are here. Okay? Yes. Yes, the point was made that here in this country, of course, we have legal recourse, and again, our forefathers made sure that there could be the free exercise of our religion as well. But awesome. Yeah. Uh, good point. But said, as Paul was persecuted for proclaiming Christ, we don't remember him striking back violently. In fact, you get the impression that you know Paul was glad to get to Rome, where again he proclaims the gospel. You just you couldn't stop him from proclaiming the gospel, even at the point where some of the guards were converted. And, and some of the governing authorities were converted. And even some of the priests were converted. You know, he must have been pretty frustrating for them to, to deal with. He just wouldn't stop. Yes, Ruth? Yes. He did, he did insert his Roman citizenship in order to not be punished and to have a hearing. Okay? So again, God provides blessings in both the kingdoms. We sometimes we're tempted to think, well, the right-hand kingdom, we know God's acting there. But he's also acting in the left-hand kingdom. He's also acting in government and in all other areas. They're both under his control, so to speak. The left-hand kingdom is ruled by the law. The right-hand kingdom by the gospel. Okay? Now, I found what I think is kind of interesting. This is from our Lutheran Confessions. And it is from the, let's see, the Article 16 of the Augsburg Confession. And I'll read this for you, and I think it really clearly summarizes our position when it comes to the church and the state, or church and the government. It is taught among us that all government in the world and all established rule and laws were instituted and ordained by God for the sake of good order, and that Christians may, without sin, occupy civil offices for serve as princes and judges, 
render decisions, and pass sentence according to imperial and other existing laws, punish evildoers with the sword, engage in just wars, serve as soldiers, buy and sell, take required oaths, possess property, be married, etc. The gospel does not overthrow civil authority, the state, and marriage, but requires that all these be kept as true orders of God, and that everyone, each according to his own calling, manifest Christians are obliged to be subject to civil authority and obey its commands and laws in all that can be done without sin. But when commands of civil authority cannot be obeyed without sin, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. So I know what we were talking about before. But you can see that the, way back in, the, in Luther's day, there was even, a, even asking the question, can a Christian even serve in the government as a civil magistrate, for example? And our, our confessions answer that with yes. There was even the question, can Christians serve as soldiers? Now, why would that question be even asked back in Reformation time? Killing. They're going to be put, or could be put in a position anyway, where they would be violating the fifth commandment. And Luther wrote a tract, a little pamphlet, titled, Can Soldiers Also Be Saved? That's the title of the tract. And his answer, of course, is yes, first of all. And secondly, why can they serve as soldiers? Again, they're not serving on their own authority. Whose authority are they serving under? The governments, and that's the answer to it. We always turn to Romans 13 on this question. And again, they are serving as instruments or servants, ministers of the government. Okay? Now, another thing. There's nothing in here, is there, about the government doing what we today would call uh, sort of social justice and helping people with all kinds of social welfare types of things. There's nothing in Romans 13 about that. Let me read you a section. This comes from Michael Mindorf's commentary on, on the book of Romans. Notice here it says, Second, an added thought seems appropriate in regard to the functions appointed by God and that are expected by him, the government, to perform. The divine essentials are detailed in 13, 3-4, avenging evildoers and praising those who do good, Thus, rulers stand accountable to God for maintaining basic law and order. The New Testament, however, does not envision government being responsible for carrying out broader roles typically referred to as social welfare. To be sure, the New Testament does not prohibit governments from engaging in such functions at whatever level, but the New Testament does not hold governments accountable for caring for the poor and needy not to mention providing education and a host of other community services increasing under their purview. Furthermore, the New Testament does not instruct believers to look to the government for such provisions. Neither does it suggest that those responsibilities may simply be delegated to government and thereby taken off of our hands. Instead, Paul asserts quite strongly that first and foremost, the extended family is obligated to provide for those among them who are in need, 1 Timothy 5, 8, and 16. Then he instructs God's family of faith to do the same. 
especially for the needy within the community of believers, but then also to those outside it as well. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. that when I read that, first time I ever thought about that, because as I've grown up in this country, and I think as we all have, we have become accustomed to the government, handing, you know, uh, caring for the poor and the needy and uh, providing all these services. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that the New Testament nowhere instructs the government to do that. And nor does the New Testament expect the government is going to do that, okay? First responsibility in the New Testament comes to the family, the extended family, and then to the family of faith, right? And we see in the New Testament, we see the church providing for the needs of the hungry and the poor, even taking up offerings for the hungry and the poor, okay? So again, it's a little different situation, a little different picture than we see when we look around us today. And again, nothing wrong with providing for the, the poor and the needy, but again, nothing that the Bible has instructed the government to do. Okay? So I found kind of interesting. All right? Now, one other thing. Oftentimes in church, who do we pray for? Government and our leaders. Right? And here again, the Bible instructs us to do this. And for example, we look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Paul writes, therefore, first of all, I urge that pleas, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made for, be made in behalf of all people, in behalf of kings, and in all the ones being in a high position, so that we might lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and respectfulness. This is good and acceptable before our Savior. So again, Kings and those in high authority, we pray for, for what purpose? So that we might lead a peaceful and tranquil life, and the gospel might be proclaimed. So we do pray for our government. We pray for our leaders. Doesn't mean we, we voted for them. It doesn't mean we agree with them politically necessarily at all. But because of the position that they are in, we pray for them as, again, God's servants carry out his will. Okay, And you'll see we do that quite often. Let me stop here for a moment then. We're kind of through that government section, the first seven verse, chapter 13. Any uh, comments or questions at all before we move on? Don? Yeah, thank you. Don was saying that when you look around and see what is happening, at least in some parts of the country, with defunding the police and not arresting people or, or not, especially not prosecuting people, being <laughs> kind of just in one door and out the other, that evildoers are not being punished, in this case, by the government, which is an unfortunate thing that, that we do see happening. Again, I won't be too general about this, but we do hear of that kind of thing happening. And again, that's, that's not what Romans 13 would instruct the government to do. There's no question. I think there was another hand, uh, Steve. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we could, we could. So the government, we do have to be careful that the government doesn't go beyond what the Bible instructs it to do also. And that's, that's always a danger as well. And as long as we have, as long as we have sinful people in government positions, there are going to be times where things are not going to go according to what scripture would say. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, we do have, there are various agencies watching that. It's, a, it can be a little, a bit of a, not, not a black and white sometimes, a gray area there. But we do want to be very careful that the government does not encroach upon our, our ability to exercise our, our faith. And that's the, that's the bottom line. We have to be very careful about that. 
I don't know who was first here. Uh, go ahead. Uh, again, almost expecting that this might come. We pr- hope and pray it would not. But I, I was just reminded when you were talking about there's that. I think sometimes we find shocking lying in your confirmation vows that you take. Remain faithful and suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from this faith. And with which you respond, yes, with the help of God or something like that. And, you know, every year when we have junior confirmation or when we have adult confirmation throughout the course of the year, I'm reminded of that statement. And we hope it never comes to that, that, you know, we are having to decide between remaining faithful to this, to our Savior, to this faith, and our life. We hope that that day never comes in this country, but if it would, or if it would some other way, I know we all pray that we would remain faithful, just as we have vowed to do with the help of God, rather than fall away from that faith. And let's hope that never comes as a result of our government. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was Bindar's point, actually, is that when you look in the New Testament, you see that, first of all, it's the extended family of that this person, and, but then it's, it's the church, it's the family of faith. And you see that happening throughout the New Testament, for example. That Remember uh, the reason they set up the deacons? That the, there were some of the Greeks who were complaining that their widows were being ignored in the offer or in the help of the four, four being distributed. And so there's an example of it. It was definitely happening back at that time, and it was the church that was doing it, not the government. Right, right, right. Yeah, that could be an attitude. We would hope that would not be the attitude. And we here, of course, do various times throughout the year have offerings going on for the needy. In fact, we can go back in the narthex right now and see an example of one. So anyway, yes, Scott. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Scott's referencing the history of the building right next to us, which was an orphanage. And uh, this congregation had a very, very strong connection with that orphanage. In fact, uh, around the turn of the 1900s, I don't remember the pastor's name now. Pastor actually lived there, he and his wife, and he was the headmaster. Any of you history? <laughs> a blank. I can see that. I can see his portrait. I can't think of his name right now. But uh, yeah, and you know, Rosie Kaiser, when she passed away, was the last living connection that we had with that orphanage, as she was a resident there many, many years ago. Okay. Oh uh, yes. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that we don't want to paint this all as a bad picture either. I'll just say publicly that we have a superb relationship with the city of the pair. And we enjoy, you know, just friendships and working smoothly with one another. We are not in any way in an adversarial relationship, either with the city of the pair at all. So I don't want to paint it. It's, it's always a, you know, it's always a contentious situation, not just the opposite, at least here on the local scene. David? Ah, yeah. Excellent example. I didn't think of that. Did everybody hear that? that during the pandemic, we did receive a PPP loan, right? Is that the, and it, it, because of certain conditions, it was forgiven. And that did help us through a, a pretty rough stretch there, last about more than a year ago now. So yeah, there's another example of, uh, of a good relationship between the two, okay? Yes, but. Yep, Foot points out that, let's see, it's in verse 7, that word respect can also be translated fear. And again, you wonder, has, has the fear of law and law enforcement and so on uh, just gone by the wayside uh, with some people? I, I don't know about you, but I still, <laughs> I 
right? See a police car come out, I look at my speedometer right away. <laughs> How fast am I going? So I still got that fear. I say it's alive and well in me. Okay, let's, let's real quickly go on just a little bit here. Verse eight, then we'll leave the government, government stuff behind. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, verse 8 does not mean you're not, you can't have a mortgage or you can't take out a car loan when it says, owe no one anything. It's talking there, I think, about, most people would agree, about an outstanding debt. In other words, you're not paying what you should clearly be paying back. And the only thing you owe anybody is love. And that is the word there is agape. It's that uh, word that's used for God's love for us. It's an unconditional, self-sacrificing type of love. And he goes on to say that that is the fulfillment of the law. And when you stop and think about it, the remember, we've got the two, when we talk about the commandments, we've got the first table and the second table of law, right? First table deals with our relationship with God, right? First uh, three commandments, and then four through ten deal with our relationship with others, right? With those, our neighbors, those around us. And we see that all of that, he's going to name off some commandments here in the second table of the law. And if we could just literally, remember Jesus said the, the summarizing the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and a second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the entire law. The problem is we can't do that, right? If we could do that, we would not be violating any of the commandments. If we could love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind, we wouldn't be breaking the other ones either. If we could love our neighbor as ourselves, we wouldn't be breaking those commandments against them as well. And so it's the fulfillment of the law. And, and in this next section here, uh, Paul interchangeably uses the word law and commandments as kind of being synonymous with one another. So what he's talking about here are the, the moral laws that God has established. Verse 9, for the commandments, see, he just said law, now the commandments. Now, it's interesting, he goes six first. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up like this. And it, it is kind of interesting here. The way they translate this, you shall not, you shall not. These are not, when you look at the original language, these are not commands, these are not imperatives. These are what's called indicative verbs that simply describe how God's people will be acting. And so, in other words, you might translate it as something like, you, you will not steal. You will not commit adultery. As my people, this is how you will act and how you will not act. And so it's summarized, he says in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Quickly, besides, so another reason, this you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep and actually waking from your sleep is actually being raised from your sleep. You're passive. It's the same word that's used for being resurrected, being raised. So be raised from your sleep. He's kind of talking about a spiritual stupor here. In other words, wake up. You know, the time is coming, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
And there's actually two, two words in Greek for time. One is chronos, which is just the passing of time. We get the word chronology from that. You know, one thing happens before another, and then another happens, and so on. But there's another word for time in Greek that is the word kairos. And that word is an opportune time, that the time is momentous, the time is right. And that's what is used here. You know, the time, the hour has, verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, cast off the evil works, and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in, and notice he has three pairs of things here. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. That orgies really can be translated more as excessive excesses, especially when it comes to banquets and overeating, and also drunkenness would go along with that. As it says there, those two kind of go together. And then he's, you know, some commentators say, well, is he kind of putting a progression in here? In other words, the, the overindulging in food and drink leads to, then, sexual immorality and sensuality, which leads to quarreling and jealousy. Whether he's not, is or not, you know, I guess we'd have to ask Paul whether he had that in mind or not. Finally, verse 14, to finish up, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh or the fallen human nature to gratify its desires. So we really look at this whole chapter as doing and living in God-pleasing ways because there is a government that God has established for that very purpose because of our conscience, because of love for our neighbor, and because the day is drawing near when Christ will return. So throughout this chapter, Paul sets up those reasons for doing good and basically living as Christians should live. Okay? All right, any final comments or questions? We're kind of up against time-wise here. All right, let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.